Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman from Jacksonville, joined this evening by May Finch. Awesome. Hi, everyone. And we have Will Rotondi from Greenville, South Carolina. What's up, Will? Hey, what's going on, man? I'm going to apologize at the top of the hour uh, or the top of the episode, I should say, uh, for my croaky voice. I picked up a little bug on my uh, travels abroad, so I apologize in advance for my sniffly, croaky voice. Uh, hopefully it'll be better by next episode. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about Blade Runner and how it compares to its source material, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? We'll also draw a side quest and play a little game at the end of the episode. But first, my lovely co-host, Will, has a word of the show for you. So, Will, take it away. Sounds good. So, in honor of Blade Runner and the fact that it very much likes to emulate a lot of classic film noir in its telling as sort of a detective story, uh, it reminded me of a lot of the Charoscuro uh, which is an Italian term for light dark, which is it became prominent back in early paintings by da Vinci and Caravaggio and got adapted into film as a way of showing uh, very definitive sorts of cuts between light and dark in scene setup in terms of the mise-en-scene that you see in terms of like whenever you've watched an old black and white film noir where somebody's walking down a dark alley and there's certain cuts of light in a specific angle or you have somebody's face is partially obscured halfway and you see maybe their eyes um, through blinds that's often a, a tool that's used a lot and so you see that emulated here as are used as well in Blade Runner, uh, whether it's Deckard's apartment through the blinds that he's got set up or just simply when he's out walking around the city, because there is so much going on in terms of light and dark, in terms of advertisements with neon signs or dark alleyways or um, just the, the general sort of smoky, smoggy environment that he's walking through. Definitely gives it that film noir uh mood uh along with of course the the lovely saxophone and that uh, evangelist <laughs> soundtrack at certain key points or synthesizer which kind of stands in sometimes for the when there's not actual saxophone but yeah that's really cool i mean i think that's one of the reasons i fell in love with this movie was like the that it felt so um authentic like to like the noir like genre and it was blending something, you know, mind you, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13. I think the first time I saw this and it was the director's cut um, I got from the local library. And uh, yeah, I was just very impressed um, with like, this was something familiar, but very different, you know, and that like I'd seen film noir movies before because my grandmother loved some of those old like Bogart, uh, you know, like oh, uh, yeah. Sam Spade, that kind of stuff, you know and Maltese um, Falcon yeah. yeah absolutely so it was it was recognizable but it was also wholly different so um but I think like uh, why it's successful is because of the techniques like that and um some of those elements so very cool man um I think that's a great pick for the word of the show uh topical you might say <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh even even for the lighting that we have we purposely filmed this at night so that there'd be <laughs> hundred percent. Yes. We, we've been talking about it all week. <laughs> we have not. Um, just a happy accident. But... 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Will, for that word of the show. Uh, let's go ahead and give our uh, side quest a little shuffle shuffle and see if we can't draw a tasty card here. So let's see. Ooh, here we go. It is a diamond in the rough. So uh, this is where we will, um, one of us will put forth a film that we think uh, doesn't necessarily get the love it deserves, you know, maybe underrated, under talked about, underappreciated. Anybody have a, uh, a selection for, for this one? I do. Excellent. I do have a, I have a selection. I, um, so <laughs> it's, uh, I, I only laugh because I've, I've been thinking about this film a lot and I thought about it after I w went to go see everything everywhere all at once. Mm -hmm. And that can be a tie-in for something else, very tangential. But there is a film that came out and I'll have to look up what it was. I should have known that part beforehand, but there is a film called Life as a House that has Kevin oh. Klein and Jenna Malone, actually, who was Ellie Arroway, young Ellie, in uh, Contact that we watched recently. Kristen Scott Thomas, Mary Steenburgen, who I guess the most recognizable for me for her was when she was in Back to the Future Part 3. It also stars Hayden Christensen, which, I mean, <laughs> Star Wars is going to be the only thing I think anybody thinks of for Darth Vader for him. But uh, actually not, I would say he gets a lot of... of uh, negative uh publicity for his acting in star wars but i actually thought he was pretty decent in life as a house that all being said the film is about this uh this aging man played by kevin klein who finds out he's uh, that he's got terminal cancer and he is trying to reconnect with his family his estranged family he's divorced um he's estranged from his son played by hayden christensen and he is trying to he quits his job and he's just trying to reconnect with everybody back home or where was home for him at one point and he is doing that as well by going back and reconstructing this house and trying to enlist his estranged family to kind of help him with that and reconnect with them and some of it's very strange uh there's a lot of of weird interplay with some of the characters but i think what really struck me and i watched this film back in high school and at the time i was going through a lot of depression and so I think that to me, watching this film about, which I thought was so beautiful in its, in its grief, in its depiction of grief, uh, I found very cathartic uh, just between Kevin Klein and mostly Kevin Klein and his wife, but also his son. And there were just some scenes, man, that really got, I mean, like, I, I don't usually cry in a movie, but there are two films that I will cry in. It's that one. And it's everything, everywhere, all at once. And I, there's something about it that just gets me, um, gets to me. Like I, and it's not in a negative way. It's just something that's very cathartic that helps me sort of work through a lot of feelings that I had when I was a teenager. So that's that's pretty much all I've got on that front. There. On the opposite, <laughs> I, I will I will cry at like a lot of stuff, man. Like <laughs> there are movies that will make me cry um yeah. that like i i've seen them uh, it doesn't matter like a hundred times and like still like i'll start crying in anticipation of crying because mm -hmm. i'm like no it's coming so yeah uh, oh man yeah <laughs> you must be a sucker for pixar films <laughs> oh, oh man, man. oh yeah. that's yeah. true too up oh god toy story um, 3 baby too like at the end of that oh uh, cool. yeah. 
like at the very end the very very end yeah <laughs> like when when they almost thought they were gonna die or no not even that like, away. spoiler alert well <laughs> uh more I'm like sorry when, for like, people who haven't watched toy story 3 yet uh <laughs> no it's like when andy's saying goodbye like giving the yeah. it's always away that that bit is what really gets me but oh um, yeah um i will have to check this out man uh is there a put so i know you talked about how um you, you know, obviously like you, you connected with it. Um, is there, um, I don't know what I was going to ask. I lost my train of thought. Uh, Oh, a particular aspect of it that you think is underrated. Is it like the performances, like the story? Um, or do you think it's just like a complete package that just went under the radar? I think it just sort of flew under the radar or maybe it was where I was at the time when I actually watched it. Maybe it was just something I wasn't aware of. Cause I know there's certain films that I just, they come out and I've had no clue that they were going to be out at all. And I watched it just because I saw the cover or I saw a, a blip about it. And I thought, yeah, I want to, I want to see that. So I think it was mostly that I could have just been oblivious at the time, <laughs> but I feel like generally whenever I've talked to anybody, no one has seen that film. So I'm actually really stoked that your wife has seen that. Like that is awesome. <laughs> yeah that's no, when like she uh brings it up like all the time whenever i'm watching inevitably like the prequel trilogy yeah she'll she'll shake her head and be like i still can't believe this is the fucking guy from <laughs> life as a house and i'm like oh i don't know yeah. i haven't seen it but um cool i really man. want to see it now because you compared it to everything everywhere all at once which Oh, that film got me. <laughs> I think yeah. I like was laughing and crying at the same time somehow. I didn't think that was biologically possible, but I guess it is. Yeah. Um, and if if they're similar, I know for me, uh, with everything everywhere all at once, the the there's just like this this thread of like very unusual emotional honesty kind of underlaying all the absurdity and comedy and, and action that is i think what you know got those emotions out of me so i would be very interesting to see if life as a house is similar i'm quite upset that i did not get to see everywhere or everything everywhere all at once this week because i was sick um so as soon as i feel better i'm going to make it like i i looked all over i was going to see it in the uk i was going to spend two hours of an evening on an international trip to go Aww. see it because that's how bad Worth we are to see it um, <laughs> but it wasn't playing in any of the cinemas so go see it at sunray that's what i did it moved to the drive-in and i just don't know if it would be a good drive-in movie you know what i mean like that seems like yeah. one i want to be kind of like close to other people like experiencing it so um but i'm gonna go see the northman at sunray uh which looks incredible but i digress all right well anything you'd like to add about life is a, a house no nothing without giving away plot points so i'll try not to since i've destroyed everyone's heart over toy story i will i will hold back <laughs> yeah you sold me i mean if that helps like like so yeah. i i want to i mean I've, I've wanted to see it anyway but like You've kind of renewed my interest in it. Maybe I'll watch it this weekend while I'm not feeling well. Um, I think it is. Gonna... I think it's, oh, it's Kevin Klein and it's uh, Christian Scott Thomas, man. They're just, oh, they're so good. They're so good. I'm sorry. That's just, I like yeah. Mary Steve Virgin. She's really, really like, you know, she's, I think like an over or sorry, underrated uh, actress. Like she's been in a lot of things that I actually quite enjoy. Yeah. She's typical quirky. You know, her characters usually are as sort of a, as, as sort of the typecast, but yeah, she's a little bit different. She's not nearly as like, I don't know, like her characters typically are, I would say, um, 
well wholesome and also very conservative typically from what i've seen and her character in this is not entirely so right. that was a nice sort of little surprise quirkiness to it but that's all i'll say about that fantastic all right well i will report back like may and i if we if we end up watching this i feel like we should circle back at some yeah. point um when we have one of these cards especially to see um if the other host agree so thanks for sharing man My pleasure. uh that brings us to our main quest and uh as i said we're going to be talking about uh blade runner and do androids dream of electric sheep and uh specifically was the book better will um since this is your card uh and your nomination i'm going to let you guide us through uh the discussion so take it away my friend thank you so I guess we'll start with the fact that Blade Runner premiered back in 1982. Uh, it was directed by Ridley Scott, and it has since then gone through several iterations of being re-released, uh, similar to Star Wars in that it has different cuts that have come out over the years. We had the director's cut back in 92, and then we had the final cut released in 2007. So depending on which version that you may have watched, and I will speak for my co-hosts and that we did not all watch the same version, which is okay, uh, because that way you get a different, you get sort of an interesting evolution of what this film was and where it ended up for the final version, uh, along with the, comparing it to the book. And again, it's uh, directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rudger Hauer, Edward James Olmos, and Daryl Hannah. And for those listeners who may have been watching these films as we have in the order that we have, it's worth noting that Blade Runner also stars M. Emmett Walsh, who you may remember as the groundskeeper in Knives Out. And here he plays police Captain Bryant. Fun little bit of trivia as well. In case you have watched the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, Anna de Armas, who's also in Knives Out and plays Marta, shows up as well there. But back to the original Blade Runner. The film's title refers to the name given to members of a special arm of the police force charged with finding, identifying, and terminating, or as they call it, retiring, sentient robots known as replicants. And this is because replicants are deemed illegal on Earth following an uprising and an off-world colony. As Chris mentioned, this is based on the book by Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And we will certainly circle back to why there, there's such a difference in the titles. There's some interesting trivia about the evolution and how Blade Runner became the name for the film, along with all the other changes that I'm sure we're going to talk about here soon. Uh, in the film itself, Harrison Ford portrays Rick Deckard, who is a Blade Runner tasked with finding and retiring four replicants who have been recently who have recently arrived on Earth. And they've come in spite of the danger to themselves because, as we learn, they each only have a four-year lifespan. And they're seeking out their creator to learn whether there's any way they can extend it. I will say that while Blade Runner is set in 2019, the book itself takes place on January 3rd of 2021. And I mention those dates for a couple of reasons. First, it skips 2020 completely. And I think we can all agree that's a good thing. On top of that... I actually picked up a copy of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep for the first time to read it on January 3rd of this year, which I thought was kind of trippy that it was one year off. 
On a final note for the film, it's one of many that popularized the depiction of that more dystopian cityscape. So that sprawling concrete jungle of industrial centers and towering apartment buildings, old and new architecture, multicultural communities, the massive digital advertisements, interactive advertisements, and lots of, as we talked about earlier, charoscuro, uh, which was very popular back with old film noir. So with all of that lovely information in mind, like to start by hearing from both of you. Uh, this could be specifics items that you found interesting between the book and the film. If you'd like me to go ahead and throw out a couple of ideas, we can, but more just kind of your general vibe of, of what you found most striking between the book and the film. Uh, in terms of like differences, I'm, I'm assuming you mean, or? Uh... <laughs> yeah, the most, I guess the most striking difference for you between the book and the film. And I know that I think maybe this was your first time watching it. So I'd actually be interested to hear from you first, uh, just uh, in terms of what you found to be the most, especially as well, because you watched the original version. So you got the <laughs> the initial voiceover and all that interesting. Uh, I did that, not uh, understand pretty... the assignment, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I think you took the assignment and you made it even better. I'm, I'm going to go with that <laughs> because I actually think that gives us a more rounded picture, but... I am very Thank happy you. to that's, be here. That's generous of you, Will. Um, my my first thought is that there were not enough blades in a movie called Blade Runner. Uh, <laughs> lots of running, not enough blades. Mm. I'm sure you'll go into the name later, but um, that was kind of the first funny thing that hit me. I I want to get like deeper into this later, but I feel like there were some very small changes made between the book and the movie for the most part. But there, it felt like there was a very big change just in kind of like, I guess, like the final message or the overall, how does the world, but also how does Rick Deckard feel about these replicants or Andes? Because it feels like they are portrayed more with like with more empathy in the movie than the book, I would say. Um, but I also feel like it comes across as a more like tight-knit story in the book than in the movie so I don't know I feel conflicted on how I feel between the two and I want to hear from you and Chris um, that's I a good point and yeah Chris especially since you've seen the you've seen all pretty much every version of the film you've read the book I think a couple of times so yeah what are your thoughts on that <laughs> I think the book is lacking almost entirely of likable characters. That was like one of the first things that like struck me. Um, definitely the uh, most of the androids are far more sinister. Uh, I think than they come across uh, Roy Batty, notwithstanding like he, you know, Rutger Hauer, I think one of the brilliant things about that performance is that you see him be quite brutal uh mm. in the early you know mo like moments of the film and then as you get towards the end uh and he gets closer to his inevitable demise um he softens around the edges and then you realize that a lot of the things that he's been doing is sort of out of fear and frustration and and kind of being fed up with how he's been treated but um <clears throat> i would say that was the biggest striking like uh difference for me it was just like i i I did it particularly like I the opening of that book, man. I, I really liked, um, sort of like I, I I was touched by the discussions around like the animals and sort of the shame around mechanical animals, which is a big thing that features in the book, 
and it's almost like a little nod in the the owl um in the film you know the, mm-hmm. the comment um about the artificial owl and then we really never see that again in the movie um but i thought that was a really cool aspect of the book um but that's pretty much where the likability of deckard in the book kind of like started mm-hmm. and stopped for me i found him to be kind of an asshole um in just a lot of different ways but uh so yeah that, that's my quick little take as far as like differences uh i do want to talk about the animals in the book uh as like you know kind of part of our discussion but um yeah. Chris, you reminded me that I was actually very upset that they cut Erin's character in the movie. Oh, I love yeah. her. <laughs> the wife, yes. She she's one of the few people I genuinely like had like a ton of sympathy for. Um, yeah. You know, um, just anytime we encountered her, right? Like but it's true. And especially since she's tied in very much to the religion that's in the book, the or she's sort of the the gateway to learning about that with the empathy boxes that the characters refer to, which is where they can connect into sort of this collective consciousness and experience this cathartic, you know, um, struggle that's sort of visualized for them as this, this guy named, I think it's Wilbur Mercer, who's trying to climb up this mountain and ends up getting rocks thrown at him by unseen forces and it may fall a few times and it's almost sort of like a version of the matrix for them because not only do they feel it but they can be physically harmed by it and it sort of comes away as this is this is their way of of sort of feeling some kind of emotion because it's like in the future in the book all of the everyone struggles to to really feel anything anymore they have devices they have these other devices they can use to decide okay i want to feel depression for a little while so i'm going to plug that in and that's what it's going to feed into my i guess the right chemicals to make me feel that way or uh, i want to be happy or i want to be you know like all the they choose the emotions they want just based on what they think is is what's on the menu for the day it's interesting so to like have the that lasting be... satisfaction of a day well done or some shit at the end like that killed me yeah. it was like it's they so also specific. had like unquestionable faith in like your husband's choices or something like that i know <laughs> oh my god or, like yeah. when you tried to manipulate his wife's stuff yeah like i'm just gonna plug this in and make her feel yeah, like they were gonna get back and get back at each other that way it's sort of it like was a overdone enough i thought it was hilarious personally but yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> it was definitely funny i feel like there was a makeup sex setting too they're like let's go ahead and like you know dial this in so like we can you know go make love and like feel connected again and i'm like that's funny there's a makeup sex setting that's great (laughs) (laughs) solid well i mean we could talk about (laughs) philip k dick and his interesting um real life versus the book if that's a segue or we could possibly just not even worry about that entirely that is up to you but i found that interesting when may brought that up because learning more about him, it's sort of like the whole thing where you 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 learn about the people that have created these, you know, these interesting works of art, and then you find out about what their home life was like, and you're like, eh, <laughs> hmm, I guess that explains a lot, but also that guy might have needed to go to jail. Yeah, it's like I I've come to understand whenever I'm looking at a film or a book that there's two main sources of inspiration people tend to draw from when they're writing. One is their own life experiences and one is the work of the, like, the people around them. And mm-hmm. a lot of like my favorite writers will be kind of in conversation with other contemporary writers or past writers in their genre. 
And whenever I see something that just seems very out of place is usually when I'll go and look up the author's autobiography because I'm like, I want to see where this came from. Yep. And uh, yeah, with, uh, with Philip K. Dick, uh, he, he writes women in a very specific way. And if you look at um, his relationship history, he actually, uh, he had many wives and one of them, uh, he like tried to run her off of a cliff in a car. I think he actually did that. There were two car related incidents, with two different <laughs> wives. Um, and then another one, uh, he tried to like, or no, he did commit her to a psychiatric facility uh, involuntarily, briefly. Um, and it, like, to me, that is, important to know as I'm reading kind of like Deckard's relationship with Erin, but also Rachel and especially that really weird scene when they're in the car and he suddenly decides to like he's going to kill Rachel, but he's not going to kill Rachel and stuff like that. Anyway, um, yep. it's uh, an interesting lens to have that information. <laughs> yeah, I hope somebody makes a biopic about him someday. I said in our group chat, I'm like people would think that a lot of the stuff that happened around him to him by him like actions taken by him would probably be exaggerated like um he was but, very involved yeah. with the fbi as well for some reason <laughs> <laughs> he took a lot of drugs he had psychotic breaks um if you really want to go down the rabbit hole i think it's called the exegesis like his big long like manifesto where supposedly he was visited by trans-dimensional beings and like uh you know it's all about like how the universe like works and all that stuff uh he's an interesting chap we'll put it that way um so where's his religion i've been l ron hubbard did like something like that where's where's the scientology knockoff from i <laughs> could be wrong yeah, maybe I, I, yeah they could take that um i do know he was very good friends with robert Heinlein, who was like mm. polar opposite on like the political spectrum and sort of lifestyle spectrum and frequently uh, loaned him money to kind of keep him like, you know, oh, wow. off the, off the streets. Um, so, um, you know, Highland was like a former Marine and like, was very like, kind of like straight, uh, straight lace, you know, um, compared to okay, Dick. Although most people probably would seem that way. Um, but yeah, he was the guy who wrote Starship Troopers, right? Yeah. And Stranger and a Stranger, uh, which are both great. Ooh, yeah. That would actually be a good follow-up episode to talk about Starship Troopers versus, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that actually. I will take a note. Um, Paul Verhoeven, yeah. baby. Uh, I, I, if I haven't put any of his films on the list and I don't think I did, I, I feel like I fucked up, but I digress. Um, nice. So yeah, we'll continue. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail that with <laughs> Philip. You're not derailing the train. You're not driving us off the cliff, my friend. You're good. Um, so to actually to go back a little bit, let's talk about the animals, because that is also a very important part in the book, since in the future, animals are a status symbol because there's not a lot of them anymore. And that's sort of depicted well in the film to the extent that there's just there's not a lot of anything living besides humans. And even then, arguably not very well. Um, in the film, the replicants often seem to be the ones with the most emotion, or at least the most emotional range, and the ones that seem to be the most interested in actually living uh, or doing anything uh, besides everybody else who just kind of seems like they're going through the motions as cogs in the machine. But the, the animals in the book are a status symbol of wealth because if you have something that's real, then you're considered very wealthy. In the future, in the book, a lot of people have traveled off world because there's been a war, there's nuclear fallout, 
if you were still on earth, you run the risk of becoming what they would call special, which is you've, you have had some sort of physical ailment due to that radioactive fallout. So your cognitive, uh, cognitive abilities may be hampered, or you may simply just be looked at as sort of a lower class in society, unfortunately. And so there's that sort of conflict. And then kind of going back to the status symbol of the animals and back to the title of it, uh, a lot of the animals that are there in the book are all purchased and fake. So much like the replicants, they are, there's always the question of, is this real or is this not real? And is having something that's fake good enough to pass off as, as a status symbol or, you know, how does that, it, that sort of affects how the characters feel about themselves and how they feel about their, you know, reputations with each other. In the film, you do see some animals that are there. There's a python, I think, or some sort of large snake that's in one scene that Deckard, when he's going after one replicant, comes across. There's the owl that Chris talked about when he goes to see Terrell at the corporation at the very beginning. Um, the owl even is, I think, a, in the book as well, is, a, is an important uh, comment about how that would be a lot of money if it's real. And how much like John Hammond in Jurassic Park, money is no expense for Terrell. So, uh, but the, I guess the other part, and just going back and watching it again for me that I thought was interesting was one of the characters, um, and I always get confused between the book and the film, but I want to say it's J.F. Sebastian, who plays um, uh, one of the, one of the, I would say one of the only characters that is friendly towards replicants, mm -hmm. um, has a chess set that he plays with Terrell and the chess set that J.F. Sebastian has is comprised of a bunch of different animals. And the one that Terrell has is more of the classic style of chess. So that to me, I thought was, was interesting to see that little bit of symbolism in there. Um, but for both of you, what were your takeaways about this sort of the importance of animals and the real versus not real and how that played into the story? I didn't even notice that about the chess set. So thank you for pointing that out. Oh. Um, I So I'm also, I'm leaning on the book a bit here just because I, I watched the original film first, then 2049, and then I read the book. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's it's top of mind. And the, the character that Sebastian's taken from, I'm looking on his name, actually. It's JR, it's uh, the... It, in, it's Isidore. Isidore. Yeah. Isidore, yeah. thank you. Uh, so uh, Isidore is actually like a mechanical animal technician, basically like a vet for the mechanical pets. Yeah. Um, and he is he's still a special in the book and in the film in different ways. Um, but he's officially shown as being kind of like the peak of empathy in the book. And I think that is very true in the film as well, in terms of like the fact that he's, you know, very empathetic with all forms of life, whether they're mechanical or, or physical. And in the film that makes a lot of sense because he works with the Tyrell Corporation with Tyrell directly and has a hand in all of these mechanical brains essentially. Um, and yeah, I think, this is where I wish the film had done a bit more with mercerism or at least that idea of, of empathy because um, with the very limited like version of animals that we get in the film, 
it's like not super clear that they are like status wise like way above any kind of like mechanical animal but also mechanical human like replicants are down here uh subway rat is up here <laughs> in terms of mm-hmm. who, they, who the humans will empathize with and value um which is an interesting inversion says a lot about the society um and i feel like that just didn't come across like very clearly in the movie and Mm -hmm. um they're definitely seen as a status symbol but i think that oftentimes mechanical versions of the animals um sometimes they're passed off as status symbols but i think a lot of the time it's just because like the the person's lonely Mm -hmm. Um, and they're fulfilling that more direct empathic need and role of just being a companion. It's sort of, I don't know, is it far-fetched to say that especially for the Rick Deckard uh, police officer, since he's not technically, uh, they never use the term Blade Runner in the book, and we can tie back to that later about the difference, but it's, it's an interesting point that for him, it's like having that pet or having, you know, the the animal for him and his wife is sort of it's something that he gets really excited about like they both sort of feel like this fills a void for them and so it's interesting to see that that's because it seems like they're very unhappy with each other otherwise they're just antagonistic to each other and even the rick deckard in the book is very easy to to even consider going out and just having a one-night fling with a replicant because he doesn't see that there's any sort of law that he's breaking in that because she's not real and so i don't know it's it's like i don't the the animals sort of represent some sort of tie into i don't necessarily want to say it's like feeling like if you're having a kid that's going to make your relationship better or maybe it's just sort of a tie back to what's real trying to feel something that's more real than just everything that's fake around them it's funny good that you say that because that's exactly what I like when I was reading that that I was thinking like oh this is like people that are uh having a you know tremendous issues in a relationship and think that having a child is going to make things better that's exactly what I thought when I was reading it so yeah. uh, I I love this is my favorite aspect of the books um and the thing I think the movie's like missing the most like I think it's one of the best like ideas left on the table so to speak besides the religion uh specifically because i love all the detail like the, just the etiquette of it like it's rude to ask somebody if it's uh, real or fake for example the fact that to spare you the shame of a mechanical breakdown the engineers are dressed like animal vets and show up in you know like cars that like uh kind of um maintain that illusion that like maybe it, it is like real um and there's a, an interesting thing that happens in the book where that sort of confusion leads to the death of a real animal, right? Um, mm-hmm. With uh, uh, Isidore, Isidore, yeah. where he thinks it's a mechanical cat and he's trying to fix it the way that you would fix a mechanical cat. It turns out it's a real cat. Um, but I, I, yeah, that's it was one of my favorite aspects for sure. And uh, yeah, they, they allude to a little bit like the taboo of, um, like with some of the Voight cough questions in the film, like like the uh, talking about the entree consisting of boiled dog, killing the wasp, and you know mm-hmm. some of the other stuff. Like a lot of those questions are very much geared around the animals, but it's not. Enti- it's very much contextual, where like you have to kind of like. I think I, I had watched the film a few times before I read the book. Like it took me three or four viewings before I really picked up on the fact that like oh this is 
the reason that this is part of the empathy test is because of like the status that these animals hold. Like, and I just figured like, oh, most of them are probably just wiped out because of the, all the pollution and stuff, right? Like I just didn't really make the, the clear connection. So. It was the same for me too. Having watched the film and having no idea where these questions were coming from <clears throat> and then actually reading the book and, and realizing how much of a big deal that was. And I thought, well, that's a nice, it's a nice reference, but I feel like they could have like, pushed it a little bit extra there to to give you some context to it in the film but oh well a uh, question for me um does the narration because like i i've only seen a theatrical uh cut once which was enough for me um <laughs> do they explain that at all because i know like there's a lot of exposition like in the the narration which was put in because uh the the test reactions were very poor without it and the studio said people aren't going to understand what the fuck's going on if Harrison Ford doesn't explain it to them so honestly I'm pissed I watched the thematic first because I I wanted I there was a throw my popcorn moment every time I heard his voice come on for a voiceover he sounds like he's falling asleep it's so bad it's like wait Harrison Ford is bored with his own movie <laughs> like, the rumor is he threw it because he thought if I do a bad enough job like they won't put it in because he he didn't want to do it like he thought it was a stupid idea so it, it was Harrison Ford was right uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway um no they did not explain the white comp test that's also something that like I figured out later um it was oh. really pointless voice over in general it like was sometimes expository but oftentimes it would just be showing obvious emotions like yep. uh I, I wrote down the worst example as I was watching, which was um, as um, Batty is dying. Oh, I remember this. The Go voiceover ahead. kicks in and says, all I could do was sit there and watch him <laughs> die. He was just trying to kill Batty like two seconds earlier. <laughs> and then that voiceover comes. Yep. Oh, I can't. Sorry. Anyway, no, the voiceover was not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hopefully someday you'll you'll rewatch this and I do urge you to watch the final cut because it is a very different atmosphere it's it really lets you watch, absorb it yeah I did go watch the scenes that they'd added in the final cut just to make sure I'd like seen them but I will do the full rewatch at some point yeah um so there is an animal in the film that does not feature in the book that's quite important um i guess at the very end speaking of which uh well at the end and then like there's a bit in the middle that kind of like ties that together and that's a unicorn uh mm -hmm. so let me ask you is the uh, eternal question somewhere in your agenda will if it is I'll, I'll leave it for now but like as far as where you come down on uh deckard in the the film is that do you oh, have that on the okay. That is absolutely okay, that okay. is on the, in it. fact, we can talk about that right now because you make a good point. So there's two animals that, and these sort of tie together in the same sort of eh, relative same sequence. We have a dove that's symbolic at the end of the film with Roy. And then we also have the unicorn that Chris mentioned, which is part of an added scene back in for the final cut that has a great deal of significance in that version and his been a question that I guess technically the director has answered at this point, but that was sort of an argument back and forth for fans of Blade Runner for a long time, which is the question of, is Rick Deckard also a replicant? Is he, is he going after people? Is that the reason why uh, Roy doesn't kill him at the end? Is that also the reason why Rick is kind of struggling as well in, in what he's dealing with throughout the film? 
but also more importantly, the fact that there is another character played by Edward James Olvos, who's a fellow detective who kind of is just sort of shadowing him on and off throughout the film and pestering him uh, whenever it's time to go see the police captain. Uh, that is also making little origami characters or, or origami animals. And I'm trying to remember the order that they come out on. But the last one that he makes is a unicorn and leaves it outside of Deckard's apartment. And so as Deckard and Rachel are leaving and trying to escape from the authorities, there's that question of, you know, did uh, Gaff, I believe is the name of the character uh, of the detective, you know, did, was he aware that Deckard was um, a replicant? Is this an implanted memory that Deckard has? Because he has this dream sequence of seeing this unicorn partway through the film. So, yeah. But uh, there's a couple other scenes, too, that might allude to Deckard being a replicant. And we can go ahead and talk about that. And Chris, if you'd like to, I would say go for it uh, if you want to take it away on that point. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I come down firmly on that, that he is. Now, whether or not that's the more interesting choice, I think is a different discussion. But uh, they, they added sort of that glare, you know, in his eyes to really drive the point home in the final cut. So like all the replicants mm -hmm. and artificial things have this like signature kind of shine or twinkle uh, that mm -hmm. shows up. Oh, oh, I can't read. My eyes are pissed for. I'm sorry, May. What does your, uh, your, your board say? <laughs> sorry, trivia board moments. Um, so uh, my, my question is actually very relevant. It says in the first Blade Runner, the Shuftan process, made the replicant's eyes glow true or false i don't know what that is so that's going to be a total guess for me i'm going to say true what about you will i'm going to be different uh, i'm going to say false so that at least one of us gets it right but i don't know what the shuftan process is either um it is true it's a process that's kind of right. outdated now i think the last <laughs> time it was used was in the first lord of the rings um, nice. and evolves uh so at least in this use case in blade runner basically uh light is bounced into the actors actress's eyes off of a piece of a half mirrored glass uh mm. mounted out at a 45 degree angle to the camera and allows them to do like a little bit of reflection special effects work very cool, cool. Yeah. yeah nice anyway so the glowing eyes chris <laughs> yes i love it man uh this is see this is why i podcast with you all like you know it just all comes together it's like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think he is. I mean, I think there's evidence like, um, you know, the fact that he's got a handler. And then if you consider like how the sequel kind of like where the world is, like I think he's the prototype of what the Ryan Gosling character of K kind of like becomes, right? They realize that the yeah. best Blade Runners are replicants, right? Especially if you can make them obey. Um, so I think mm -hmm. he's like the first replicant without a lifespan. Um, and again, I think it's a different discussion if that's the better choice or the more interesting choice. But that's my that's my take. The unicorn. How about you, man? Oh, Sorry. Uh, yeah, I was going to say when they threw that in there. How about you, yeah. man? What are your thoughts um, on that? I kind of don't. So I, I don't like him, the idea of him being a replicant as well. And mm -hmm. I don't see the unicorn as strong evidence that he is just because there's a lot of other explanations potentially for the unicorn. I mean, it's been a classic symbol of kind of like your, your peak mysterious, magical, mythological animal. And in a society that basically worships animals, it makes sense for that to be seen as like a, a popular symbol. 
And mm-hmm. uh, when I first watched it, before I looked up the fan theories, I thought, you know, it was it was Gaff kind of like giving his blessing, I guess, to him running off with Rachel as being like either she's a unicorn or like you're a unicorn, and in, in that you know this is a special circumstance, essentially. Yeah. Um, and like with the director's cut, with him having that dream, I it. it it, it felt like just kind of dashed in after the fact to me. So I'm just going to ignore it because I saw the theatrical <laughs> guy. Nice. There are plenty nice. of like, like hardcore Blade Runner fans that do, right? Frank yeah. Darabont, uh, the guy that directed, you know, Shawshank Redemption and like was the showrunner for the first season of Walking Dead, like famously mm-hmm. like refuses to like uh, accept or like entertain the possibility because he thinks it's a far more beautiful story if Deckard's human. Yeah. And like, I don't know how to like necessarily score that with 2049 because <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think K would have happened eventually regardless, just because sure. they kept making replicants better and eventually human like Blade Runners wouldn't be able to keep up just because they were mm-hmm. so powerful. So it makes sense that they would start employing other replicants. Um, but like the whole uh, plot with Rachel and Deckard and their kid in 2049. Um, yeah, I don't know how it quite squares with that because also I I think their 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 love story is um not exactly a love story. Um and I don't know what was so unique about it that it was able to produce a kid between the two of them. Uh but I feel like if it was as simple as like mating two replicants, like they definitely had tried that in some lab before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they it's make valid. the comment to like in 2049 that it's Tyrell's like final joke, right? Like that he um, made it so that a replicate could, you know, reproduce, but like didn't tell anybody about it, right? Like it wasn't yeah. a private thing. So I have a counter theory. I think that's false. <laughs> you think it's false? <laughs> I think that's false because the, re- the only reason they know that Rachel died in childbirth is because they make this comment about her like birth canal being too small. Right. She, she was built. She was built to die in childbirth, essentially. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't think it was intentional at all by Tyrell, personally. Huh. Interesting. That's, that's a good point. That. Yeah. How about you, Will? Uh, things to go back on and, and reflect on when we talk about 2049 more, more fully. Yeah. Oh, but back to Deckard. Um, yeah. I could see it either way. Uh, but I have to go with the, I feel like just watching the changes that they made to the final cut, my gut is to go with the fact, or go with the idea that he is a replicant. Um, and I just, I think because of the the glowy <laughs> eyes and I, it's the camera trickery. It's what gets me. It's the, it's the conspiracy theorist in me, I guess. But I, uh, I feel like it was that and it was the dream sequence just going off of what was added back in. I mean, but I'll play devil's advocate and think that, you know, with the with how the animals are such a status symbol and also the fact that there's so many advertisements everywhere you go that I could see it's conceivable that, hey, he watched an advertisement that had a unicorn. And for some reason, everybody's just thinking about unicorns right now. <laughs> so I could it could all just be subliminal. So. Yeah, the other reason that I don't like the idea of Deckard being a replicant is I feel like it was partly added in to make the scene where he comes on to Rachel more comfortable because you can kind of excuse his behavior as a replicant as, oh, he doesn't know how to like 
respectfully court a woman or whatever. Are you telling me that uh, <laughs> that, that wasn't uh, appropriate behavior? Every time I see that, I'm like, fuck, I forgot about this. Like, so cringy. Yeah, it, yeah. Gets, it gets rapey real fast. It um, does. It does get rapey. Yeah. Uh, anyway, then I, I, I feel like after you know it going through multiple audiences in time it was easier just to kind of like imply he's a replicant and doesn't like know stuff um whereas i think like deckard is intentionally an extremely unlikable person and mm -hmm. i'd rather him just be a shitty human than just an awkward replicant in that moment agreed kind of like he is in the book just make yeah. him that shitty character from the book and we're good <laughs> yeah, i forgot he was yeah. like you know as i'm like because i only i've only read the book once in college so i was like um wow i'm like this uh obviously didn't stick in a way that i feel like it should have, <laughs> you know like this made quite the impression on the second read like i was genuinely yeah. getting pissed off on the plane i was reading i'm like how am i gonna get through 200 pages of this like and then when i re realized that they kind of switched perspectives a little bit in the book here and there i was like all right well this is making it tolerable but yeah it's true I think one of the other interesting differences too is not only, and this can sort of, I guess, continue on into the into the replicant side of the house versus the shitty humans, is that <laughs> in the books the replicants are less. I mean, the whole sort of the whole, I guess, message, if we want to try and simplify it for the book, in some ways, is that it's all about what makes you real, what makes you human, versus a replicant. And empathy seems to be like hammered on you all the time as the defining trait of, if you're empathetic, if you can feel for something else, then you're a human. But a replicant doesn't have empathy. A replicant doesn't care if you pull the legs off of a spider or if you are just. It just doesn't. It doesn't click for them. So that's why the Voight comp test works. Is they don't see the significance of being empathetic to other creatures or um just the decisions that they make like chris was talking about about how they're they're a lot more sort of just emotionalist and ruthless uh or just uh they don't really care about anybody around them it probably also arguably makes sense since everybody seems to want to kill them uh, so it's it's interesting looking at the book and seeing that perspective versus how they're trying to human they're trying to be humanized more in the film and especially with Roy Batty, and especially with uh, the ending in his, you know, his, I guess, classic is, is a good way to, uh, to say it is his monologue at the very end. So what are your thoughts in terms of that about the replicant side of the house? They're quite mean to JR in the book. Like, uh, I think it's, um, oh God, I'm in a space. What's Roy's uh, wife's name? It's kind of like Ingrid, but not Ingmar. Oh, what's her name? God damn it. I think you're close, actually. I'll look it up real quick. But yeah, as opposed to like Zora was the character in the film. It was like Roy had a wife in the book. Yeah. She's the only one that kind of like tells Pris to calm down because Pris drops the facade like as soon yeah. as the other replicants show up and she starts being a complete dick to like, yeah. go get me that TV. Like, I don't <laughs> want to live with you. Like, do I have to live with this guy? Can I stay in this other apartment? And it's like, damn, dude, like... He's trying to like be your friend and he's lonely and he, you know, he's offered to like shelter you and like do what he can to protect you and hide you. And um, very different in the film, right? Where like you get the idea that Roy is a little bit like amused with the idea of Sebastian, you know, like you can kind of see he gets a little impatient at times, but kind of plays the game. But Pris seems to really genuinely like 
Sebastian, you know, she's a little kinder to him. She's obviously mm-hmm. using him too, but like, you know, she, she's not nearly as, as mean to Sebastian. Um, yeah. I, 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 you get the impression that the uh, replicants are running scared much more, I think in the film too, than they are like in the book. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I like the film. I, I prefer the film portrayal of the replicants. They are way more, I root for them. I'll put it that way, way more uh, in the movie than I do in the book. So, how about you, May? So, like I said, this is a point of me feeling conflicted because they're much more human in the movie. But I almost like them better in the book just because really? it feels more consistent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have, and I, I, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on her name, but the uh, opera singer um uh zora in the movie or the book sorry in the movie sorry no the the book i mean the movie she's kind of a burlesque performer right yeah yeah she Um, takes the pleasure from the serpent (laughs) (laughs) oh damn (laughs) that's what they said i'm quoting the film there Um, (laughs) it's like zuber or something in the book right the opera singer but something like that it's close um but yeah the opera singer um in the book, like I, I loved her character quite a lot because uh, she definitely seems kind of like the, the the cleverest, I would say, of the Andes, as the replicants are called in the book. Um, but she's still, um, it, it's interesting that like she's definitely like the most clever and analytical, but she also seems to be the most invested in like human art and music and expression and 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 genuinely taking part and enjoying those things um she's definitely doing it to a degree for safety because she thinks she's safer as a public figure but um i don't know i just like felt like more of an ability to relate to her as an individual given that she'd kind of carved out this really interesting life for herself as Mm -hmm. a as a you know runaway illegal android um and then as far as as far as the the trio that uh go hang out with jr uh yeah Pris is an asshole uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i actually love how Bowdy's wife kind of like chides her for that because that's also a very empathetic response and like the way it comes out maybe isn't super like human but mm-hmm. the idea of seeing another suffering and not just adjusting your behavior but trying to coach someone else to adjust their behavior mm-hmm you know that 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 feels very genuine and empathetic to me um so yeah no i i think i do like the androids better in the in the book than the film just because it felt like again to make it more theater friendly and relatable they just kind of gone for trying to make them awkward one moment and then very cuban and emotional the next in kind of a very like coin flip sort of way mm-hmm. Uh, which gets the message across, but I, I like the consistency that you see in the book. I'd actually agree with you on that in terms of the characters. I think that the consistency for me made more sense, especially for the replicants, or I should say the Andes in the book versus the replicants in the film, because one of the things that I, I think I struggled with it more the first time I watched the film, and maybe I watched the one with his voiceover, but I can't remember. Um, I have seen that one, but I... Uh, I think that for me, it was Roy's sort of, I felt like Roy was a little all over the place, depending, I guess, sort of, he's not the only one. I feel like Leon was a little bit too, although Leon was always a little jittery from the beginning, since he is the first replicant that we're, we're shown, and he also has to escape because he's almost uh, captured. 
but I feel like Roy just kind of has some sort of like schizophrenic sort of behavior going on because at one point he'll like torture you know this one guy that they're interrogating to try and get into Terrell's corporation by freezing him but at the same time they he'll he'll somehow see some sort of connection with Sebastian or then he'll want to go and uh, you know assault his creator toward the end of the film so violently or then he'll turn around and give this beautiful soliloquy at the very end as he's dying. And it's like, you, I mean, you have definitely seen some things. You don't have to tell me that, but I like how you're telling me, but it's like, you've got, you've had a long rough road. And so, and I think for me more, it was like, why did he let De uh, Deckard live after he went through this whole theatrical performance and the, the animal noises that he makes, which I guess is another thing we didn't really necessarily tie in with the animals, but like his sort of animalistic attitude at the end. And um, I'll, one of the scenes where he uh, basically does physical damage to himself in a very Christ-like way in the final cut where he kind of gives himself stigmata and then suddenly there's a dove that comes out of nowhere that symbolically, I guess, represents him becoming good and going to heaven. I mean, you can he must have that stolen will, like but... a magician's coat or something. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for my there's next just a trick, spare dove in his yep. pocket. <laughs> As talking about what's real and what's not real in Blade Runner is like going to a magic show. Yeah. So it is. Yeah, it's so strange for me. Uh, at least it was initially. So that uh, I think from that perspective, that was what, when I read the book, I thought this makes more sense. This seems more fleshed out to me in terms of the plot, in terms of what's important with sort of the, the structure of society, and then in terms of the replicants and their consistency. But that actually ties into one trivia question that I've got for both of you. And it's a little bit, hopefully, um, I did my research correctly, but it's a little bit of a trick question. So at the very end, um true or false when roy batty gives his soliloquy that was all made up on the spot by rudger hauer i feel like i i've read this at some point <clears throat> i know that he contributed to it but i like i don't know how much like mm -hmm. the same way that robert shaw like tweaked the indianapolis speech in jaws like that mm -hmm. was something that existed but i don't fucking remember man I i'm gonna say i'm gonna say like he improvised the tears and rain line or something to that effect but like maybe not the entire thing okay i'm gonna say that they did multiple cuts mm -hmm. and he improvised them but only one of them made it to the final film so true okay so the answer is false in the sense that and there might be some we could we could we might let it slide for both but he did uh he took what they had which was a longer version of that and he kept a certain i guess he he sort of said hey can i he pitched some ideas to it and one of the comments that he made was you know can i cut out here and then can i add in some stuff in in sort of the middle so he kept lines like certain things that he alludes to like the sea beams or about um Oh, the one before it. I, I can't remember, but there's like Attack the two main on fire off the shoulder of Orion. There you go. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> so stuff like that, where it was like certain items were like the essence. There were certain bits that were still there, but then he emphasized the extra part around it. He cut a lot of it and then he ended with the tears and rain. So I guess technically 
you're both partially right so i could let it go but yeah <laughs> yeah you said it was a trick question it's your fault you should yep. have just left it true or false <laughs> i know but see i like when I, I like to play it a little bit to see if you go for the bait or not so yeah but yeah i actually really liked it i thought that was cool and i always think it's interesting when actors like you know you talk about jaws but i always think it's interesting when actors contribute something to the character that wasn't in the script and it just freaking nails it you know you watch it and you think yeah this movie's got some weird stuff but man that was really good and so if it had been a little bit more consistent i think throughout that probably would have had even more of an impact for me but yeah What's uh, i don't know what it's called but there's a phenomenon that you see in films periodically where it's like the villain is getting to the point where it's like you empathize with him too much so he has to commit <laughs> some random act of violence <laughs> to kind of like pull the audience away that felt very true in the case of, of, of Roy Batty when he uh killed his creator um because it's like up to that moment I'm just like I'm actually rooting for Roy Batty and then he kills him I'm like oh maybe not <laughs> in a very Oedipal way too you know yeah like, like there's like a, a weird stuff going on I've always read that final scene is like uh he is sort of um trying to teach uh Deckard a lesson about what it feels like you know to to be afraid to be hunted right it's a almost an abbreviated version of his entire life right in a lot of ways and then he is showing mercy to be like hey like maybe it's a little egotistical like I could just let you fall i could lob you off the, I, I could have killed you a thousand different ways by now um so i am superior because a i'm showing mercy and b like i kicked your ass like several times in the last five minutes like the rest of us that's the most harrison board's ever got his ass kicked in a movie by the way i feel like like he he's, does not do a good job like at any point <laughs> like no that's that's always yeah. been my read though of it is it's like you know it's a little bit of ego but it, he's trying to teach a lesson to Harrison Ford well before we wrap up because I think we're probably at that point now in the film itself and also in our podcast on it uh, I would like to throw out a little shout out to the title of the film uh, since the original novel was do androids dream of electric sheep and the title obviously got changed to Blade Runner I always thought it was interesting that the reason that they chose that was it was a title from um, another story that was adapted uh, called, uh, well, it was called The Blade Runner. And it was by, and I'll find his name here in my notes if I look close enough, but I want to say it was Alan Norse, who actually was a physician and a science fiction author. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. But apparently his novel was also dystopian. And it dealt with a bunch of, in the future, it's sort of the concept that if you ever become sick, you are sort of excluded from reproducing. Like they, it's another one of those, we don't want anybody who's gonna spread any disease and this planet's already way overpopulated. And so if you ever become sick, you're sort of weeded out and submitted for sterilization by the government. And so in order to, try and survive you have some empathetic doctors out there who will hire on what they call blade runners that are basically like the young um the quick young folks that want to go out there and fence pills syringes scalpels anything they can find to help these doctors out for treating people who may not necessarily want to be found out as being sick 
And so uh, if you want to read a little bit more about that, there's a good article on theverge.com that kind of goes through the details on there. But I would actually like to see that as a film. I think that would be cool. And also just the title makes a whole lot more sense to me because although Blade Runner itself sounds like a badass name for a job description, I'm like, I... Okay. <laughs> like you said, May, there's a lot of running, but there sure as shit aren't a no lot of blades, blades in this movie. No blades. So. Come on. <laughs> there's a lot more blades in the sequel uh, dealing with love than there are in the character love, I should say, for anyone listening, uh, than there are with, um, yeah, with uh, Deckard. So there's that. Yeah. But if they make that's... that film, they have to call it Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's only fair. Like, I know, yeah. Like... Turn the tables. <laughs> People are going to be like, huh? The what? fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, man. But still, excellent. Well, before we wrap up entirely, um, I guess the question does come down to, do we think the book or the movie is better? Um, I'll let you guys go first and then I'll wrap up at the end uh, just to give you some feedback in case it helps for your determination the what I was looking at mostly for comparison was I looked at the plot overall um, the characters which we talked a lot about the overall message of what we thought the book or the movie might be about and whether you preferred one or the other and just sort of the style as well so whether we're talking the charoscuro that we've hampered on a couple of times or just anything really stylistically about either um, but I will I will turn it over to both of you for whoever would like to go first. So like, I, f I feel like most listeners getting to this point will know that I'm going to go for the book, but I will explain myself. Uh, <laughs> to nice. the film's credit, it did in a lot of ways establish slash reinforce the cyberpunk aesthetic. And I absolutely love the score and cinematography in that film. Like it, it was eye candy, especially watching like the like I guess either restored or HD version that was on Netflix um, and it was really cool uh, just to like like see all the model work I, I really love physical models and of course I did that in the sequel film 2049 as well which was a great homage to the first film and made it feel more real but um, yeah I just I loved everything that went into like the visuals and the music and even the character design and costuming, like I want to give that a shout out as well. Each one of Rachel's outfits like made me gasp. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> um, and the, the film like nailed all of that. And it's, it's hard to compare that to like, like book descriptions. Um, I will say that the descriptions fell flat in comparison and that if I'd, I'd experienced them in a reverse order, if I'd read the book and then watched the film, I think I would have had a much less um, or a much harder time kind of visualizing what was going on in the book without having the movie visuals in my head already. So that is a place where the movie is very strong and definitely deserves its place as a sci-fi classic. Um, however, I do prefer the book and that is because of the characters as well as the plot. I feel like the plot uh, is very like clean and tight in the book. There is kind of like a little bit of a weird epilogue feel to the last chapter uh, that I don't love but by and large everything makes sense it follows like a very like clean concise chronological formula I'm not really like questioning anyone's motives uh, whereas in the film there were definitely times where I was confused like why certain things are happening as we talked about the white comp test didn't make a ton of sense to the questions um, until you actually read the book and get that out of context 
uh, and, and there are other things going on with uh, the replicants and the added um, kind of erraticness of them that we discussed, where they're not necessarily behaving in a manner that seems like robot, robotic and rational, but also not like like humanly emotional. And it just it doesn't make a ton of sense, especially with Roy Batty towards the end, mm -hmm. uh, as much as I do love that final monologue. Um, and then, yeah, just with the characters, like I mentioned, Erin um, is such a beautiful character um, in the sense that she is a, a perfect foil to Deckard. I'm really glad that <laughs> <laughs> she was in it. Um, and she seems to be, rather than kind of having a brave face and just getting on with life in this dystopia, like willing to push back a bit and kind of lull in, in the sadness and loss of this world that I like. Um, and I also really like the opera singer whose name I'm still forgetting her character, but it's like Lugo um, or, Super or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, her character is great. And like I said, I think it brought a lot of dimensionality to the androids and, um, I, I, I liked the burlesque Python dancer in the film as well, but she definitely didn't get to say as much. The whole scene was basically just Deckard being pervy towards her. So oh, his accent, <laughs> uh, have you, have you thought yourself to be exploited? I love <laughs> so bizarre, man. Uh, by the way, that's Dolores from who framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Why? Uh, really? the love interest of, uh, Eddie Valentine. Yeah. Damn. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so she was <laughs> good. But I really love the opera singer's character, um, and yeah, I'm just I'm just going to have to go with the book. And also, like I'm I've been a lifelong fan of sci-fi novels. I love Frank Herbert and all of them, and uh, it definitely like uh, fits very well into that canon in terms of kind of exploring a new world. And I also love stories that have generally like cast of unlikable characters. <laughs> Nice. Um, so that didn't uh, dissuade me from the book at all. Excellent. Uh, oh man! For... All right, Chris. I know you, and I only say this because I've known you for a while, and you've always talked about the film. But I make no judgment calls. So over to you, buddy. No, yeah, no. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Like, I mean, this is in my top five <laughs> favorite films ever, and it's my favorite sci-fi film. Um, mm -hmm. it wasn't always so. Like, it, it took me a while to like warm up to this. Um, you know, I. I obviously struck immediately by like the atmosphere of it the more i watch this movie like it, it's one of those like films that makes it so high up on my list because i do get something new every time i pick up on some little either like eh, production detail or like some nuance like in some of the acting um i actually really prefer um the androids and how they're they're portrayed in the film specifically because like they are developing emotions and I've always liked that aspect, right? They make the whole comment of the reason they have the lifespan is like, they don't want them to get too emotionally intelligent. So I've always kind of read it as like, they're almost like toddlers that are mm. not really understanding how they're feeling. They have sort of impulses, right? And they're acting on impulses. And I like, I like that a lot. Um, and uh, I find the character of Batty to be just like, comical in some scenes like when he's got the little like eggs and stuff like he's playful <laughs> in a way that like in the book like he's i, I don't know like it, I, I just i prefer that like that iteration like for me it just works a little better um i i do think it's a piss poor adaptation of the book in a lot of ways like i do think they there was a lot left on the table that was interesting in the book 
Um, all of that uh, being said, I I do tend to think that um, Philip K. Dick books are notoriously hard to adapt, and it seems like that is kind of the trend as they take what the writer the screenwriter or director finds to be the most interesting bits and then like everything else goes by the wayside right like if you look at like minority yeah. report or mm-hmm. total recall yeah. they they're very 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 few things that make it over that are really interesting in the book and that might be because it's kind of hard like but i think this one you you could almost do like another adaptation and it would not feel like blade runner you could do another version of this have it closer to the book and it'd be very interesting so uh mm-hmm. it's not to knock the book but yeah I, i'm firmly in the camp of the, the movie it's a very special like film for me i write to that score for both 2049 and, and blade runner like i can oh, put it on it's gorgeous. um and uh yeah just like it's uh one of those instances where everything just comes together beautifully for me i do think oddly enough harrison ford's the least interesting thing like you know despite have so, sort of top billing and like and that's not a knock against his acting. It's just, I don't feel like the character of Decker is really particularly like interesting, um, nor is that performance particularly transformative. It's everything. Around. He's got a lot of support kind of holding him up, you know, scene to scene. So um, mm-hmm. I will say like that, that's been kind of a consistent criticism of mine towards the film, but it doesn't end up really mattering for me. I'm like, yeah, I still this would be like with all my heart. So that's my, my final call, final answer. <laughs> lock it in lock it all in. right well and for me as well uh, i will start by saying the film itself is gorgeous and the sequel when i i mean this is going to be tangential but when i watched 2049 after having watched arrival and then i heard that villeneuve was going to do dune i thought he's going to nail it i don't i don't even have to worry about that because i felt like watching this film he just he got it he got what it what the look was going to be and what the feel had to be and i felt like i was like i hadn't watched blade runner in a long time and i thought i'm back in that world i mean the, the score was phenomenal and it's Hans zimmer so I, also it's sort of like a once you hear his name attached to a project you're like whatever it is i'll watch it or i'll listen to it and i'll love it um but the music is yeah it's very important I, actually it's in it's interesting you made the point too earlier about sort of the whether you hear the saxophone or you hear something that is trying to mimic the saxophone and i think a lot of that sort of synthetic um music is important because it is a question of what's real and what's not real what is or you know in this world that we're in and it's all very much in the 2049 it's very classic zimmer where it's just hammering at you you know <laughs> shaking your bones while you're watching these like and it could be a slow motion scene but you're just you are hammered by whatever this epic score is going to be um but even in the first one too it has a very distinct like at the very end or the very beginning when it's you know they'll start a note and it'll just sort of like go down at the very end uh, when it trills and so it's it's beautiful uh but i could talk way too long about film or about music for that to be relevant so i will step back a bit i will say that for me it was the book as well that i liked more um for a combination of factors i thought the plot was more interesting in the book um, in terms of the the religious aspect that was thrown in there too about how society was about the importance of animals and just sort of how all the characters tied in together there is a very strange and I'm assuming very symbolic end to that book in terms of where there is sort of this apparition that Deckard sees of uh, Wilbur Mercer helping him. And then sort of a whole deconstruction about Mercerism by Mercer. And it's 
you can take a lot away from that uh, how you wish. And that's a whole other conversation, I feel like, as well. But I think it's worth the read because it's just interesting. Whiskey, and it's, man. That's all I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. And it's just and it throws a curveball. And it's very, I would say, kind of classic dick in the sense that it is, you know, you thought you knew what was going on to a certain point, And then it's like, no, not entirely. So I don't know. You know, it's sort of the it just adds to it a little bit more, adds another layer to what is real and what's not. And so I enjoyed that part. I like the characters a lot more in the book, whether they're terrible people or not. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was more consistent with the re- uh, the Andes in the book versus the replicants in the film. Um, but I also like the message too. I thought it was interesting in terms of what makes you real. I, I felt bad because in the book, I think the replicants or the Andes really get shafted because I would have liked to have seen more emotional sort of a take on them in the book than in the film so i will agree with you they, they're they are by far the more interesting characters in the film by a long shot um so it's it's too bad it's sort of like if you could have a little bit of both and make that into one thing i think that could be really beautiful uh, i will say as well for the film the style i mean the i'm i'm a big fan of models too uh, all the old sci-fi i think looks way more realistic when they use at least a model base for it uh no it's, and that's actually it's a good point i mean i love all the prosthetic stuff they used to do in sci-fi um so yeah even just the matte paintings and stuff versus like all the cgi just there's something about it i don't know if it's the nostalgia factor but i think it, it looks more real to me it was a lot of fun i hope you guys enjoyed it too it was a lot of fun to go back and rewatch this film uh to talk about different versions of the film and to talk about the book that it is based on. Um, regardless of the shortcomings of its author and his personal life, as well as perhaps the shortcomings of our protagonist in the film and his um, rapey behavior, which <laughs> is definitely a no-no. Uh, how he had a child, I will, well, we'll leave it up to that. But the, I guess, is now the question of what our next side quest slash also choice for a movie will be for... The coming week so chris i'm going to turn it back over to you sir yeah we could draw our card before we play uh another round of keyword countdown for sure that oh, way like right. we can end with some fun uh no it's all good man all right let's see what our next film for our main quest is gonna be this is like i'm not gonna lie like one of my favorite parts of the episode when we do this uh it's so satisfying and like there's a little bit of suspense it's great the deck is rigged all right so Ooh. Only if he draws my name. <laughs> we are going to do a camp or cringe. <laughs> and the description of that for our audience members is cheesy movies. You love them. You hate them. You love to hate them. Discuss a notorious film and why it's considered cringe or camp. And this is going to be a May film. <laughs> Two oh, yeah. of a kind. Two of a kind from 1983. A film I've not seen, and I purposely didn't look up. I was like, you know, some of these films that, especially the ones I'm like, I've never heard of, I'm, I want to just like, I want to go in blind and just experience it in its purest form. So, so I you found give out us a little about background? this. Yeah, I found out about this film uh, because of a YouTube channel called Pushing Up Roses. Shout out to her because mm. uh, she talked about it, and it is possibly the worst rom com ever filmed. <laughs> sweet that's saying a lot (laughs) sounds like might be another watch party time Um, i think so (laughs) okay fantastic all right so that's going to be our next film for those of you watching and following along two of a kind from 1983 
So very excited for that. And to close out the episode, May has prepared a, another round of Keyword Countdown. Thanks again, as always, to Mr. Gavin Murphy of RKG Video, who has given his blessing for us to occasionally play this on the show. You should check out that channel. They do amazing work. They uh, most recently made a, um, a series called uh, Three Ways, which is them trying to do the same task in a video game in their own kind of personality style. And it is six missions of Hitman. And it's quite funny to see how they all approach those tasks differently. So highly recommend that channel. May, take it away. Uh, show, show us what you got here. All right, boys. So you know the name of the game, but for your first movie, your first keyword, I will go through 10 total and you will gain points as you go. So like if you, you know, guess on the first one, you get a bunch of points. If you don't guess till I give you like the last keyword, well, then you just get one point, et cetera. Um, I'll keep a tally as we go. But yeah, for our first film, your keyword is desert. As in like a sandy desert, not not dessert. Dune. <laughs> Lawrence not Arabia. Dune. <laughs> Star Wars. A new it is hope. Not Star Wars. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. It is not Lawrence of Arabia. I can only do two, right? If I could do more than two, the mummy. <laughs> it is not the mummy. Although now I'm wishing I had put that one on here. All right. Uh your second keyword is dream. So we have desert and dream. How's this not dude? Come on. <laughs> um, dream, 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 dream. Wayne's World 2? No. <laughs> that would have been amazing. You know, with the Native American, like with his butt. Uh, uh, any ideas, Will? Cowboys and aliens. No. All right, your third keyword is neo-western. So we have desert, dream, neo-western. Brokeback Mountain? No. No Country for Old Men? Ooh. Hey. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> that is good. The yeah. speech at the end is where the dream factors in, where he talks about the dream wow. that he has. And the last line is, and then I wake up, woke up. Yeah, love it. Yeah. All right, Chris is in the lead with eight points. Okay. Cha-ching. For our next film, our first keyword is opera singer. <laughs> Blade Runner. No. Fifth Element. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Did you get it? Is that, that is awesome. That's awesome. Oh, the best How? sci-fi opera <laughs> ever i have okay. to say i was amazed that they could actually that that was real like she actually that that was like a real voice and not synthesized so i, I i'm gonna say that i drew on my knowledge of the fact that you like sci-fi for that one so i was like sci-fi opera mm -hmm. singer so it's a little bit of like deduction but fair all right <laughs> well be ready to respond on this next one <laughs> <laughs> whatever you do just start naming science fiction films <laughs> okay uh your first keyword is watching a kung fu movie kill bill true reference <laughs> no no office space ding yes <laughs> yeah. oh son of a bitch uh, that's that's two right. tenors right there that's awesome it is it is uh yeah let's do scores all right so chris is in the lead with 18 but will is coming for him at 10 
That's right, baby. Oh, man. All right, I think this will be a little bit harder for you guys. Your first keyword is new kid in school. <laughs> mean girls. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ah, <laughs> uh, so close. So many. Karate kid? No. Yeah. I'm going to wait for the next. All right, your second keyword is teen angst. So new kid in <laughs> school and teen angst. <laughs> oh, I feel like I have to like go back to like 80s films for this somehow. Yeah, 90s too. Like, yeah. Donnie Darko? No. Oh, that's a good guess. I would think. It is. Yeah, because Gretchen, right? She's the new kid. But yeah. All right, ready? Peace. Your next keyword is black comedy. So you have new kid in school, teen angst, and black comedy. Idle hands? No. Damn it. I'm still going to wait for another clue. <laughs> okay. I feel like it's on the tip of my brain, but go ahead. All right, so your next keyword is female protagonist. So you have new kid in school, teen angst, black comedy, female protagonist. Clueless? No. That's not really a black comedy, I guess. It's more just straight comedy, but. All right, your next keyword is character names as titles. Jennifer's Body? No. That's not a black comedy. <laughs> I've never seen it, so yeah, I'm like. <laughs> So new kid in uh, school, teen angst, black comedy, female protagonist, and character name is title. Oh, I want to, you know, it, yeah. Truthfully, I wanted to say drumline, but that wouldn't work now with the. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, man. bring it on. Uh, with the titular, bring it on. <laughs> bring it on, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah. All right, this, this next keyword might help a bit. Are you ready? Yeah. We need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New kid in school, teen angst, black comedy, female protagonist, character name and title, click. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's something very obvious that I'm missing. I know. Like, we're going to feel like assholes. Like, these guys couldn't come up with this film. <laughs> the next one will be very obvious. So let All me right, know if you ready. want it. Um, I'm ready. Give me uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> no. Okay. Your next keyword is killing spree. Oh, so Carrie. Have... No. What? It's <laughs> not really a comedy either. Jeez. Uh... You have new kid in school, teen angst, black comedy, female protagonist, character name is title, click killing spree. What? I'm embarrassed to say I do not know. Um... I'm not sure if you guys are going to get this one, but I'll keep going. Your next keyword is dynamite. What the fuck <laughs> is this? I feel like this is the next film we need to add to the list. Yeah, no shit. Dynamite, Killing Spree, New Kid. No, I got nothing. This is okay, painful. Your next keyword, your second to last keyword is oh, spaghetti. Yeah. All right, I'm going to list out all the keywords, including the final one. Are you ready? Yeah. Yes. New Kid in School. Teen angst, black comedy, female protagonist, character name is title, click, killing spree, dynamite, spaghetti, serial killer as protagonist. Just <sighs> <laughs> end the suffering for us now, please. <laughs> Have you heard of a film called Heathers? 
Yep, oh. but I'd never seen it. No. I didn't know that that was the uh, the case. Yeah. So that's it's wild. Awesome. Like <laughs> you need to watch it. I'm Isn't that gonna is that right Winona Ryder is in there? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn it! Oh, uh, no, I just I didn't know the plot. So it's it's oh. a famous film. You were right when you said eighties. I think it did come out in the eighties at least. Yeah. Nice. My spidey well. sense was tingling for a reason. Cool. Yep. Good pick. Yeah. I. You stumped Damn. us on one. That's always a good. That's always a good thing. Yeah. All awesome. Right. All right, last one, last one. Are you guys ready? Yep. So Maybe. we have Chris at 18, Will at 10. Your first keyword is underwater scene. Underwater? The abyss. No, and no. Both Titanic. are great films. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Lots of underwater there, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Royal Tenet are... bombs. No. <laughs> he loves his underwater. Shit yeah. Better. Your next keyword is lab. So we have Shape underwater scene and lab. Ding, 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 ding. Hey. Oh, what'd you say? Shape of water. Oh, uh, nice. Nice. And you All know right. what? I would not have gotten that because I don't think I've seen that film. So. Really? Shocking. I know. It's good. It's, it's I solid. I, I, uh, I watched. I watched it on a plane next to my mom, which was a very awkward choice. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. There's there's some uh, some spicy bits in there for sure. Did they leave the spicy bits in for the plane flight? Yeah, because yeah. I think sometimes they they edit like films out sometimes. They do. Yeah. They did not in this case. Oh, okay. I think with yeah. seatback stuff Sorry. and because like the screens are kind of like obscured from like unless you're like straight uh, on like they, yeah. they there's a little disclaimer that plays um before them, but yeah. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> yep Oops. well sorry um yeah. it's okay that's um but uh yeah congrats chris you won you. Nice. Yeah. Oh. nice job great job will i i am still impressed that uh you got off of space that quickly me nice. too i wasn't even near that in my brain so yeah that's that's awesome all right cool. good work guys well, that about yeah. wraps her up. So we will all see uh, see you next week. Um, thank you for hanging out, listening. Uh, please do give us a like, a share, subscribe, a comment. Any kind of interaction really does help the show, especially that share part. Um, so if you feel inclined to let people know, uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Until next week, we love you. Bye. Bye, Bye. guys.